Hello everyone around the world, welcome back to the airport, your one-stop shop for all the latest goings on with the Royal Family. I'm your host, Omid Scobie, joined by my lovely co-host, Maggie Rooley, who is somewhere on the other end of the line. <laughs> <laughs> Someday we'll be together, but for now, we're both calling in. <laughs> I know the irony of last week's episode was you and I actually were with each other right up I until know. we actually recorded it. And then I had to go off and record it from the back of a car. So It was good to see you again. But the only person missing now is Yoshi. I know. Well, he is asleep, snoring next to me. Oh. So I apologize if that comes up in the background. <laughs> he, he really is the, the host of this. We're just fill-ins. Yoshi's the exactly. star. Exactly. <laughs> this is his world. We're all in it. Um, thank you for everyone for the amazing response to last week's episode. We sort of did it on the fly, but I, Maggie did. You did an amazing job. Uh, there were big shoes to fill just like it. Wading through the chaos of the launch of Finding Freedom, <laughs> mm-hmm. which of course has been way more than I expected. Um, very excited to see it on the New York Times bestseller list this week. Um, oh, but that's such which... a big deal. I'm, I'm so excited. I think it just shows how many people are so interested in this and uh, how much they want to know sort of the truth and what happened and details. And it, it's just so great to see that it's had that kind of reaction and response. It's been great to have such a positive response. Mm-hmm outside of the more predictable areas of the press, shall we say, um, because ultimately that's what matters. And that is why later on this episode, you and I are going to be going through, wow, a long list of questions <laughs> from people who have read the book around the people world. People have questions, Omid, myself included. I'm really excited for this. <laughs> uh, but before we get to that, uh, we do have news uh, from the royal family this week. Despite it being a quiet August in which not much usually happens, we of course had the launch of Finding Freedom, but we've also had a busy week for the Sussexes and members of the royal family commemorating VJ Day. Now you may remember earlier this year Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, sharing some of her favourite reads. In fact, Maggie read through that list with you guys on the airport. Now, in her role as patron of the National Literacy Trust, she's put together Camilla's Summer Reads, a list of her favourite books um, that she's sharing with the world. Now, this went out to readers of the Press and Journal in Scotland, but also on the Clarence House Twitter account, so do check it out. But it includes an eclectic mix, including Girl by Edna O'Brien, which is a story that lays bare the trauma of Nigeria's abducted schoolgirls in what Camilla says is a very harrowing novel. Uh, Peter James's Dead Simple, which is a crime thriller um, about, funnily enough, a Sussex detective. No relation to Harry and Meghan. Of course, we have The Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas and The Island by Victoria Hislop, which won a number of literary awards here in the UK. Now, this is all part of her role as patron of the National Literacy Trust, which encourages children and adults alike to discover the joy and benefits of reading. And I could see Camilla starting up her own book club at some point at this rate. It's clearly something that works well for her. Now, as I said, it has usually... Now, as I said, it is usually a quiet time for members of the royal family in August when the Queen goes off to Balmoral. The work kind of ends for most people until September. But the Sussexes, marching to the beat of their own drum, are really getting a lot of work done in LA. Of course, we, they recently moved to Santa Barbara. We spoke about that in last week's episode. 
Now we're getting a little peek inside that home in a number of Zoom conversations. The first one starting the week was a conversation with Queen's Commonwealth Trust leaders about social media. Uh, this included young leaders from Australia, including the founder of Man Cave, which is an initiative that encourages young boys and men to speak about their mental health, but also to redefine what masculinity means and break down some of those stereotypes uh, that feed into toxic masculinity. We also had a YouTuber and empowerment speaker called V. And of course, this is all hosted by the chief executive, Nicola Brentall. Um, it was a very interesting chat. And one where we got to hear a little bit from Megan about social media and trolls. And this is something that they are no stranger to. Megan says you can either train people to be cruel or you can train people to be kind. You can either train people to be cruel or you can train people to be kind. And it's really that simple. And I think as long as we are actively working in that space and that you know, people are taking responsibility for what's happening in the online spaces. That's what's really key. Going back to all your points, I think the one sort of combining piece here is courage, right? Mm -hmm. Is despite everything that's happening, it takes a huge amount of courage for, for you guys to set up a community like you have, mm -hmm. but then also for other people to, to stand up to hate, to stand up to disinformation, to stand up to lies. You know, we live in a world where a lot of other people are benefiting from it, but you know, again, like full respect to you guys, every single one of you, stamp those lies out, stamp the, the mistruths out, because it does, it just, it reaches people and communities that are that become incredibly confused. This wasn't the first time we heard from Megan this week. We also heard from her in a new interview for the launch of the 19th. A news organization founded to shine a light on the unfinished business of the 19th Amendment and to empower women. It was an opportunity for Megan to talk about the importance of voting and for that voting to be accessible to people of all backgrounds. But it was also an opportunity for her to speak to the co-founder and CEO, Emily Ramshaw, about the launch of the 19th. Now, it did see Megan sitting in the interviewer's seat for once, but it did flip back and forth a few times with Megan being asked by Emily what it was like to be back in the US. You know, from my standpoint, it's not new to see this undercurrent of racism and certainly unconscious bias. But I think to see the changes that are being made right now is really, it's, um, it's something that I look forward to being a part of um, and being a part of using my voice in a way that I haven't been able to up late. So yeah, it's good to be home. Now, we're not even halfway through the week because Harry and Meghan actually stood away from the webcams and actually got out on the ground to help distribute diapers, wipes, clothes and school necessities to young children and disadvantaged families in LA for the LA nonprofit Baby to Baby. Uh, now, this is a charity that's already distributed over 30 million items during COVID-19. Um, and really, despite the humidity, I think it was 95 degrees on that day, Harry and Meghan stayed out for the entire day giving out uh, school supplies and essentials to young children. This followed a conversation that Megan had had the night before for the virtual When All Women Vote couch party. This is part of an initiative that Michelle Obama found. Megan referred to her friend Michelle Obama, but more importantly spoke about the importance of voting and why it's so exceptionally important for everyone to honour those that came before us and protect those who come after us. So as I was thinking about this a little bit, I thought, 
when I think about voting and why this is so exceptionally important for all of us, I would frame it as we vote to honor those who came before us and to protect those who will come after us, because that's what community is all about. And that's specifically what this election is all about. You know, I think we're only 75 days away from election day. And that is so very close. And yet there's so much work to be done in that amount of time because we all know what's at stake this year. I know it. I think all of you certainly know it. And if you're here on this fun, um, fun event with us, then you are just as mobilized and energized to see the change that we all need and deserve. So I'm inspired to see all the work that you're doing in your communities as well as for your communities. Now in the US, Victory Over Japan Day, uh, which is a day on which Imperial Japan surrendered in World War II, effectively bringing the war to an end, uh, that's celebrated on September the 2nd in the US, but here in the UK, it's marked on August the 14th. And we saw Prince William, Princess Anne, Prince Charles, and other royals marking the 75th anniversary of VJ Day. Amongst the family members that marks the event, we saw the Queen issue a statement which spoke to both the sense of relief citizens experience at the war's end, as well as the terrible devastation that so many had to live through before its conclusion, we also saw Princess Anne speaking to World War II veterans online, of course. Uh, one of them, 99-year-old Sidney Pigeon, recalled seeing Lord Mountbatten, Prince Philip's uncle, who was with the Supreme Allied Commander in Southeast Asia at the time. And we also saw Prince William deliver a speech that was broadcast as a part of the BBC special programme VJ75. In the address recorded uh, earlier this month, William spoke directly to those who fought in the war, saying, your bravery and the sacrifices will never be forgotten. As we mark the 75th anniversary of Victory Over Japan Day, to each and every one of you who contributed to the effort, I say thank you. Our country owes you a debt of gratitude. Your bravery and the sacrifices you made will never be forgotten. Now I'm going to take a quick break, so stick around. So the royals have been busy, but Omid, everyone who read your book has also been super busy because the amount of questions you got after you posed, you know, on Twitter and on Instagram, asking people for all of their most burning questions after they read your book. I know that I had so many people reaching out to me, so um, let's just dive right into it. I have a lot of questions for you, Omid. I'm actually start... a little bit nervous because you... just <laughs> so everyone knows, we haven't really gone through these or pra no, prepared we're reading any them answers. Cold. We are just doing them straight up, so I'm, I'm ready for it. <laughs> I have Omid's Twitter feed open in front of me right now, and we're just diving in, so you're going to come on the journey with us. All right, the first question um, from Jody Lee, she asks, what do you think is the sliding doors moment where it all went so wrong? Now, do you remember the movie Sliding Doors where it was like your life goes one way if you make one decision and your life goes the other way if, if you don't? So I love this question because it's so visual, right? Was there this one moment? You know, she asked, it seemed so great post-oceanic tour and such an asset and then boom. Do you think there was a boom moment, Omid? Well, Harry is famous for his boom moment with the Obamas <laughs> and the Queen, but sadly it wasn't such 
a positive one in this case. Um, you know, it's interesting. I wouldn't say there was one specific moment, but really what we outline in the book is this build-up of frustration mm. after several different moments. But I think where it really, really started to crack was during uh, the Duchess of Sussex's pregnancy, because I think mm. that was a time in which the press commentary, particularly in certain sections of the tabloids, became extremely negative at such a vulnerable moment in any woman's life. And I think that's really one time where the couple, and particularly Meghan, felt extremely unprotected by the institution of the monarchy. It was the time when they really desperately wanted to speak out and defend themselves from some of the mistruths that were being reported. And of course, alongside that, the very ugly undertones that existed in a lot of the commentary. For the couple, they really felt that this went beyond the need to sort of follow this no comment policy that the royal family have, that actually there were much bigger reasons to speak up because a lot of what was being written crossed certain lines. As we discussed last week, there were moments mm. where commentary verged into areas of racial insensitivity, cultural insensitivity, and of course, straight up sexism. And I think these made it an increasingly difficult period for Meghan, and one I think in which it really became clear to them that they were never going to get the support that they needed. Oh, interesting. But you think it was almost more the, the timing of it as well, because we did see you know, some of these articles being written for quite some time, the complications uh, within the family for quite some time. But it seems like that timing around her pregnancy, you think, may have actually been the catalyst. I think it was a, just a very vulnerable time mm -hmm. for Meghan. She was in an extremely new situation in another country away from her own mother. And I think that's when you really need to lean on your new family for support. And that support just wasn't there often enough. And I think, you know, we've spoken about this before, but that moment where Meghan spoke in Southern Africa and thanked Tom Bradby, the interviewer, for the documentary they're filming, for asking her how she was doing because not many people had was extremely telling. And I think those are, that really sum, summarises exactly how she and Harry felt during that period of pregnancy. And of course, on top of all of this, we also had this very unrealistic expectation from some of the public and also sections of the press in which Archie needed to be almost presented on a silver platter for people to consume in some way, that people weren't happy with the way he was being announced to the world. People weren't happy with how his christening was going to be shared with the world. And I think it sort of fed off this very unhealthy relationship that certain sections of society and the media have towards the royal family, but also really exposed where the, in the infrastructure of the institution of the monarchy isn't equipped enough to protect and help those really suffering as a consequence. Well, here's another question sort of about the institution as well. And this, this has come up from a couple of people. This one's from Mavela. She goes, um, could you discuss how or why leaking and abusive firm employees are not brought to heel? In any other corporate firm, this would constitute harassment and result in termination. What do you think about that? Well, it's a very good point, And it's why I've at times described the situation that we saw unfold with Harry and Meghan, kind of an HR 
crisis, you know, to have uh, members of their own sort of team or family that they are part of being involved in some of these leaks um, was an extremely unpleasant situation for them and made them feel even more unsupported and unprotected. But you have to remember that this is one very big establishment, but what lies within it are three very different households or different agendas, all equipped with their own staff looking out for their own bosses. And Harry and Meghan weren't really part of any of those. They had their own small office off to the side. And so it left them very exposed. But I think ultimately, you know, I've seen lots of people asking why hasn't anything been done about these quote unquote leaks? It's because they often happen under the radar. It's done anonymously and, uh, and often it's done in exchange to protect another member of the family or to protect other information from being uh, revealed in a certain publication or just to keep a newspaper editor sweets. Um, that, that information is currency. And we see that really happen in the world of celebrity. We see people working for celebrities on movies or uh, talent agencies often being behind some of the worst stories in the press about that person. Everyone has very different agendas and it's very hard to pinpoint this. But unfortunately, it kind of is history repeating itself because Diana was of course famously victim to those men in grey suits herself. And it's one of the things that really drove her away from the institution amongst many others. And that's exactly what we saw with Harry and Meghan. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned sort of all these different houses. And I think in your book, a lot of people had questions about the relationship between these houses, in particular um, between Catherine and Meghan. So Dan um, Reedman asked this question. She goes, it seems that both Catherine and Meghan love tennis, fashion, and to cook. I don't understand how they had nothing in common except for living at Kensington Palace. This is one that a lot of people want to know more about, this relationship and just why it didn't work. Well, absolutely. Yes, they do love fashion, they love tennis, but these are very surface level things. And really one of the things that the book goes into detail about is firstly how they were never at war or that they were never the dueling duchesses as certain tabloids coined them. They were just two women that had this very surface level friendship. So yes, they were able to connect and bond over things like trips to Wimbledon. Of course, we saw them there a couple of times. But certainly in those moments where more depth was required or perhaps a stronger shoulder of support um, from the Duchess of Cambridge's side, we saw that that didn't happen over and over again. And it was one of the things that really left Meghan, I think, a bit disappointed in that friendship because there were times, as we've just discussed, that I think that she really would have appreciated that extra support internally. And now listen, a lot of people have asked me over the last couple of weeks, why do I think Kate may have not been there in that situation? And the real answer is, I don't know. I don't want to put words in her mouth or thoughts in her head. But it's clear that uh, at the time, her priorities were elsewhere. And we do see her as an incredibly dedicated mother, wife, and member of the royal family. And maybe that's a lot for one person to juggle. I think it's just a shame that the circumstances that surrounded them and of course the fractures that existed between Harry and William uh, almost prevented 
the two women from having that close bond because I don't know about you at the very beginning I was excited for these two women yeah. to be part of the same family I was like this is the dream team yeah, the here. Fab Four. exactly yeah. the two most high profile women in the world working together and living mm. in the same compound that's incredible but unfortunately it just never it never lived up to that yeah, there was so much hope there for a while and excitement. Who, I mean, I, I'm still such an optimist. I'm like, maybe in the future, Omid, maybe we can dream. <laughs> well, you know, you talk about the future. I think it's important to know that whilst I don't think we've seen any change between Meghan and Kate, the relationships with the Sussexes and the Prince of Wales and the Queen are very strong and continue to be so. So I do see a world in which the families come together and we see them all crossing paths in in a much more sort of organic and family-based way. It won't be about the work, but I, I think, listen, people say it's best not to work with family and perhaps that might be the fix yeah, here. Fair. We're going to talk about family and a lot of people are also asking uh, where Megan's family sort of was in the book. And uh, uh, Linda, she starts off by saying, first, the book was a great read, exclamation point. So just saying that. Um, but she goes on to ask, why is Megan's family notably absent from the book? Does her mother have siblings? Does Megan have back black family members? I feel like they're never publicly acknowledged. Did you talk to them? What was kind of the story with Megan's family in this book? That's interesting to ask. I mean, firstly, I think we have to remember that the majority of this book takes place in Canada and in the UK. So I think that that physical lack of family presence without, oh, throughout the book on Megan's side is often because of where she is. But of course, we do go into detail in the book about Megan's close relationship with her grandmother, who of course has sadly passed away now. And there are a number of strong figures on her mother's side of the family that have played important roles in her life. In the book, we even go into detail about her uncle who helped her get... Oh, this is an uncle on her father's side who helped her get a work placement in Buenos Aires in Argentina in 2002. And so these people have played roles in her lives. But I think, you know, Megan's also at a place where she has grown up and I think there has been some distance uh, physically with certain family members. Um, and unfortunately, we've also seen uh, repeatedly many family members on both sides uh, speak to the press, which has, of course, uh, get, provided their own fractures to the relationships. And it's left Megan, I think, in a very uh, sort of s small mm. family place. You know, her relationship with her mother is incredible. But unfortunately, other family relations have suffered due to that increased press attention. Plus, I would add, there are also family members on Doria's side who are incredibly private people. We did not approach them for the book. They did not appear at the wedding. Uh, I think these are people that like to stay outside of the story. And who can blame them? I mean, look at some of the sort of craziness and chaos that came with... Yeah. Um, other family members well, it was the second they struck up relationships with British media outlets. This next question, Omid, I'm actually really excited for your answer. Oh, no. So uh, this is from the S on my chest equals Sussex. Yeah, and this is a two-part question, but it's really good. She asks, what's one thing you wish you could have included that missed the book and something that you regret that you included? Well, certainly no regret. Um, you know, this is a book that I think... Well, that's nice. That's a good way to live. Both Car well, it's important. Carolyn and I really approached this book carefully. I think we 
what we wanted to do was highlight certain stories and certain areas of this story overall that made brought sense and brought a side of uh, or a perspective that we hadn't necessarily had. But there were also things that I think we felt weren't necessarily worth diving into. We did not uh, speak with Samantha Markle or Thomas Markle. I think those stories have been exhausted and done to death in the tabloids. So it wasn't necessarily important to us, I think, to go there. Um, and I did see people asking about that. Um, in terms of things that I would have liked to include in the book, listen, there's a lot of politics that goes on behind the scenes uh, within the institution of the monarchy. And unfortunately, I think this book wasn't necessarily the book for that, because ultimately this is a book about Harry and Meghan's journey. And I do think that there are much bigger stories here that perhaps are best to be told in a separate space sometime in the future. But these are things that I think are a bigger part of the story and not just Harry and Meghan's part of the story. So some of those sort of inner workings of the palace and of course, as you may have noticed, we didn't name a lot of people in the book. Again, I think we really didn't want to turn this into or, or for it to look like score settling because Carolyn and I are very in, uh, impartial and independent in this and it, we really wanted to cover it from an, I guess an outsider's perspective as well as hearing um, the thoughts of the couple through their friends so I, I think I, I think maybe if this was a slightly different book or if this in, included bigger stories within the royal family going back to uh, even Diana's days, there are bigger stories to tell when it comes to the inner workings of the institution of the monarchy. But this just didn't seem like the right place for it. Hmm. You, you mentioned some of those inner work. I actually have. Oh, oh. sorry. Well, oh, sorry. Go no, no, no. I want. I want to. People want to hear what you have to say about this moment. What were you going to say? I actually have a question which I would like to ask oh. you, although it's kind of for okay, me. Okay, okay. So, this is fun. Mia. <laughs> So Mia Francini, I apologise uh, for flipping this one, but I, I really am curious to hear what Maggie thinks. It says, was it surprising for you as a journalist to see the way the narrative surrounding the Sussexes had sometimes been twisted by other news organisations um, or those that had witnessed the same things that you've reported in the book? Oh, interesting. You know, I think it's a good question to ask. And it also, as a journalist that works both covering Harry and Meghan and the royals, but also other stories, it's kind of a good question to always ask yourself covering news stories because, you know, it's amazing even if two outlets are reporting the same facts, just their choice of headline or what facts they choose to lean into and which facts they don't choose to lean into or perhaps ignore can really change a story. And so I do think it's important to always read reporting, whether it be about the royals or anything, uh, and be critical. You know, make sure you also do your own reporting and read various media outlets. Make sure that you really know the truth behind what's happening. I think it's amazing, you know, when you look at some of the reporting coming out of Harry and Meghan over the past few years, uh, where headlines would be just totally different about the same story. And, uh, you know, it can be purposely misleading or biased. Sometimes it's more just, you know, um, omission of certain details. But those things matter and those things add up. And so sort of on the reader as well to do their due diligence and make sure that what they're consuming is accurate and is as truthful as possible. But, um, you know, I think 
it almost extends beyond Harry and Meghan. You know, I know this podcast is about Harry and Meghan, and so uh, I think that's what's very shocking. But it's something that you see sort of across the board, I find. Mm, absolutely. I think, yeah, I think this applies to any news beats whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But I think it is particularly more prevalent in royal reporting and yeah. celebrity reporting as well. I think this is one of the very few spaces in which sometimes stories making headlines have absolutely no truth, not even yeah. an origin that it may have started as. We see the most ridiculous... And what did I read recently? That Megan <laughs> and Adele have been doing yoga together in LA just because oh, but... they happen to both be in Beverly Hills at the same time. Although I kind of wish that story was true, selfishly. <laughs> like, I would be oh, in listen, an amazing I... yoga class. <laughs> <laughs> I love those kind of stories, but unfortunately, a lot of the time, they're yeah. not true. And they're also not big enough to ever be contended or taken on by the people that they've been written about. So they mm. just sort of exist How in the public domain and are very quickly believed and picked up over and, and over a, yeah. again. That's a really good point. And the example you give is, you know, almost an innocent example. But just imagine if it's more sinister, if it's really a lie out of nowhere that attacks you personally. And the other thing I notice, uh, uh, you know, about a lot of celebrities and especially Harry and Meghan is just, you know, the reporting sometimes forgets that these people are humans, that they're not just, you know, names in a tabloid or in a newspaper that are getting reported on. They're humans that are going to be reading this and they'll be reading these lies and you know that's kind of hard to swallow sometimes totally i have not experienced anything like that but it has been weird to see small things here and there about myself in tabloids that are so far from the truth including a story that claims i have a pair of chanel skis which, um, firstly, I wish you had fancy, a pair of Chanel. <laughs> very fancy, but as a snowboarder, that that offends me because I am very much team snowboarding. You're like, it's um, a Chanel I... snowboard. Let's get it right at least. <laughs> uh, I am the well, real so... deal on the slopes. <laughs> Thank yeah, you very that's much. That's so interesting, Omid. I mean, I definitely, you know... Um, have read more about you in the newspapers than I ever expected to. And it's it's fascinating because, you know, you're my friend now. So to be sort of um, witnessing and experiencing, you know, someone being written about who you know so well, it's sort of unnerving. And, you know, it's actually a, a, lot, a lot of people had questions about that as, as well. And um, a, a few people were asking in particular, you know, what the reaction had been like from co-workers, people that are also royal reporters or royal commentators, other people that you've worked with, uh, what their reaction was like. Some of it has been not always, you know, the the nicest. And people also Mm. wanted to know if it's going to be difficult working with some of these people going forward. I mean, I think the royal beat in general is one that really is driven by opinion. I mean, it's Look, we are not short of royal commentators in the world. There are a lot of them covering every different era. And, you know, I myself am one of them. And I think I knew this book would, of course, be perfect fodder for any royal commentator. And that commentary would be critical. It would be negative at times. It would be challenging. And I'm open to all of that because I think that there's nothing healthier than conversation about... Uh, stories in journalism you know and I think that this book really does give a different perspective to a lot of the stuff that's been out there and so I wanted people to be having conversation about it I think what has disappointed me is to see how much of it has gotten personal and it Mm. then makes you quickly realize 
the kind of emotions and unhealthy behaviour that goes into the reporting and the writing about members of the royal family. I think I've seen time and time again how quickly it almost seems personal when a royal family member does something that a member of the press doesn't agree with. I mean, Harry and Meghan's decision to move to the US has not only been a fascinating story, but it's also been one that, it, but on the, outs, on the outside, it looks like there are certain reporters who have taken that move very personally, as if two friends or family members have turned their backs onto them. And the reality is that these are people that you don't know. We've been in close proximity to them, but they are not friends. So it always surprises me how personal things get and how quickly they do. I think we really saw that with Megan because she did things so differently and it rubbed people up the wrong way. And I think a lot of that newspaper commentary was simply how the journalist who was writing it felt about Megan and not a more balanced view of things. And so to be on the receiving end of, of that too, I'm not surprised. I'm disappointed at the lack of professionalism in some quarters, but again, I shouldn't be surprised. Well, it's interesting to all of a sudden you're potentially getting a taste of what it's like to be on the other end as well. Yeah, you know, I spent a long time writing about this and uh, Mm -hmm. reporting on it as a witness to what was going on. And I think to have experienced a sliver of really what I had been seeing for the last few years definitely doesn't surprise me because it's it's I'm challenging a narrative and this book does as well what Carolyn and I have done has really gone against the grain of what Harry and Meghan's story has been in the UK for such a long time and I say the UK because I think in the US it's been very different if you've been watching royal reports on GMA for the past few years I feel this book continues that narrative we've already had a sense of what uh, where a lot of these stories sit um, in, in, in reality. But I think if you followed it in some of the British tabloids, it's kind of a shock to the system to read some of this stuff because it is so different from what it is that's been depicted by certain gossip journalists. Well, that's, that's interesting. And I think you know, the surprise of some of these details, um, a lot of people uh, on, on Twitter, they're asking the question of how do you get these details? And... Um, Mary asked a good one. She, she wants to know about sort of the sourcing. Uh, she wants to get in the weeds a little bit. And she asks, how, Let's do it. how difficult was it to verify your sources? And how willing were people to actually talk to you? And she wants to know sort of like, how the heck did you do this, Omid? <laughs> <laughs> well, Carolyn and I, at the very start of this, after making our um, sort of... Uh, ambitions known to Kensington Palace at the time which is kind of royal protocol if you're writing a biography you just let the palace know that that's what you're working on so there are no nasty surprises later on and we had a you know we put together between ourselves a dream list of all the people we wanted to reach out to Mm. and listen I would say it was crickets from a lot of those people you know to have journalists that you may not necessarily know that well reach out to write a story at a time when so much negative stuff had been written about the Sussexes I think was almost like a like why would why would you go even near that but I think for those that were already quite familiar with how we operated on the Royal Beat and had a sense of the type of stories and journalism that we're that we sort of uh, advocate for I think for, for what I found is that very quickly 
people were saying yes, or they were at least showing early interest because they were frustrated at having very few other places to set that narrative straight, to correct a lot of the things that they'd themselves been witness for or in the room at the same time of. And so that's really how the book started out, this frustration that many of the people close to Harry and Meghan, and I, I, you know, in that group I include friends, past and present, and family members in some cases, uh, the people that have worked with them, both past and present, in the royal entertainment, philanthropic spaces, you name it. And I think that after some months had gone by and the stories in the press continue to be quite negative and sometimes verging on hateful, I think we found that we had this little corner where we had created almost a safe space for some people to speak. And I honestly don't think that this book could have happened or would have even existed had it have not been for that very different narrative that was being woven by some of the tabloids here in the UK because that's really where that frustration amongst many of the friends and people close to the Sussexes was born. Well, here's a, a, a detailed question then for you, Omid, if you're going into your, your sourcing, okay? This one might stump you. Is now, <laughs> as soon as I read it, I was like, I need to know this question too. So at Ravel Gang 7 asks a question. What happened to the chicken in the oven when Harry proposed to Meghan? Did, 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 the, did you get that detail for us, Omid? <laughs> Do you know what? I haven't even thought to ask anyone. I, I presume it was Me eaten. Me neither. I was just... <laughs> I started laughing over here when I was reading that one. I was like, you know what? That's a good question. What happened to the chicken? Okay, that can be in your next book, Omid, the chicken expose. <laughs> but that reminds me, I, one of my favorite stories in the book is that we go into these beautiful details about how Harry had made this promise to Meghan um, to, to, to make her his wife in August when they visit, revisited Botswana. And this was probably followed like five days later by the chicken proposal. But I remember when I was first talking to a source about this story and as excited as I was to hear a new detail, I was also in the back of my mind worrying that the chicken story hadn't actually happened. And so <laughs> when I found out that that had just happened a few months earlier than we all thought, I was quite relieved. But I don't know what happened to that chicken. I'm sure it's delicious. And Megan has posted recipes for the perfect roast chicken on the TIG before, so it looked pretty, pretty bomb. I, yeah, <laughs> I feel like they would not have let it go to waste. Absolutely. This is, love chicken, this yeah. is a, a couple all about sustainability. I'm sure it would have been exactly. eaten and the carcass turned into a soup the next day. <laughs> we know question. Um, I'm at a final sort of question for you here is I'm also seeing a lot of questions about the future and not just the future of sort of the royals. People want to know if you think the brothers will ever be able to mend their relationship. They want to know if you if they think that uh, Harry and Meghan will ever come back to the UK. Do you think that they'll be potentially working royals again? But also the future of royal reporting and how it's done. This is a big question to, to launch at you, but mm. you know, I think it's one that I'm seeing a lot of people asking again, not just the future of the royal family, but also the future of royal reporting. Well, 
The future of the family relation certainly is taking steps in a great direction. I think there's nothing to bring a family together like concerns over the health of a parent. And Prince Charles's coronavirus scare earlier this year was certainly one of the things that put Harry and William in in a place of communication that they hadn't been in for some time. Now, I don't know the extent of that beyond that there were talks but it certainly seems that there is uh, one step in the right direction there. And of course, on top of that, you would have to remember the Queen made it very clear to the couple, both personally and as the monarch, that the door is always open to them. And I think that that really goes even beyond this 12-month quote-unquote probation period that we're in, that she will always support them, even if it is them in another country as non-working members of the royal family. And I think that's really important. It shows how she feels about the couple and, and how they feel vice versa, because of course that warmth is there on both sides. We know that Harry and Meghan have had conversations mm. with the Queen during lockdown. Uh, same with Prince Charles as well. I know that Harry's relationship with his father is particularly great right now. And so, you know, these, these I think these give us hope that you know ultimately this is a family like any others you don't just sit in one place mm. um, after a difficult time for the rest of your lives you move on you grow you learn there's wisdom that comes from these moments and I think that this will be no different for, the, for, the, for them particularly on Harry and Meghan's side. In regards to the future of royal journalism that's a very good question. I think one of the things that this book did that I haven't really seen done before, or at least not since the 90s when we read Andrew Morton's Princess Diana book, A True Story, was pulling the curtain back on the wor inner workings of the institution of the monarchy. I think exposing mm -hmm. some of the areas in which that establishment lets Harry and Meghan down and I hope that there are lessons that are learned from that, conversations that are born from this, that not only put many who might have been involved in a more reflective place, but also sets up uh, a healthier place for newcomers in the future. Ultimately, this is about someone that joined the establishment, was let down, was not protected. And because of that, the family member that belongs to that establishment decided to leave and take them with you know and for them to all all step away and that's a huge loss and you know we've seen women marry into the royal family before and leave battered and bruised emotionally uh, more than a couple of times and I think that that's something that really needs to be looked into but I think that there is a role that the press play in that too as you pointed out rightfully they are human beings at the end of the day. They are not owned by the public. They, they are supported by the public financially when it comes to their work. But their children are not public property. Their lives are not there for public consumption as and when one wants. And I think that there's just a level of humanity that I hope that we start to bring into royal journalism, a little compassion, a little empathy. I think we really saw that disappear so many times. And often the argument was, well, how can I be empathetic to a situation and be objective at the same time? I think the two can coexist side by side one another. And that's one of the things I hope people take from the book is that we have rehumanized Harry and Meghan uh, to some extent, because 
for a long time it felt like they were caricatures, that they were products of this story that had grown a life of its own within the pages of the tabloids. And that happens time and time again with celebrities and public figures and even politicians. And it's it's a, it's a danger it can be a dangerous game at time because ultimately what what is at play at the end of the day is people's mental health and their state of well-being and i think that often that is completely ignored oh my i could we need another podcast of questions because i have so many more to ask you i think people have more to ask you as well we could talk forever about this but i think that's a testament to the book and this topic as well you know people ha- have read your book but they 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 want to know more and uh that's always a good thing Definitely. I have, I'm, there are so many questions actually that I think what I'm going to do later this weekend is actually jump in and reply to some of them myself on Twitter because there are <laughs> good ones there and I appreciate everyone sending them over. Um, Maggie, I feel like this is not going to be the last time that we talk about finding freedom. <laughs> I, I don't think, I think that's a good prediction, Omid. <laughs> There's just so much to talk about. Oh, there is one question here. Someone says, what was the book originally going to be called? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. What, what was it going to be called? Well, I don't know the answer to this It didn't ha- actually have a title. The publisher, uh, just as a working title, called it Thoroughly Modern Royals, which was never something that I particularly was interested in and neither was Carolyn. <laughs> And Finding Freedom was born after a texting session with my literary agent. And I was just, I kept saying, I just want it to alliterate. That's all I want. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I kept thinking about this this journey that the couple are on. Independence, freedom, self-expression, the things that we see them able to do in a very healthy space right now. Um, So I hope... I hope that it worked. <laughs> anyway. Well, I'm a big alliteration fan, so it got me Omid. Love that. Well, I guess that just about wraps our show up for this week. But I guess. I'm excited to read more of your answers though. Let's let's revisit some of these. And guys, if you have more, send them over to at Maggie Ruley on Twitter. Is your Instagram the same? It is, yes. Instagram, Twitter, send them to me, send them to Omid. I really love the interaction. It's been so great to hear from so many people who read the book. It's been fun. I think that's really been a highlight for me because it's so easy to get lost in the noise of tabloid commentary and not actually notice that outside of that there's a very healthy and positive community that have really engaged Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. the topics covered in this book. And so I'm very grateful for that. And on that note, I have to go and take Yoshi out to use the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> See, Yoshi really does lead this podcast. We weren't joking. It's all about Yoshi's him. also Omid's dog, by the way, in case all of a sudden someone tuned in and was like, <laughs> who is going to the bathroom on this podcast? It's a dog, everybody. It's a very cute dog. <laughs> you know, there were some questions in that list simply asking for pictures of him. So uh, I'll, I'll throw one or two um, I second those. Those were actually all from me. <laughs> your, your fake accounts. <laughs> yeah, all my fake accounts begging for more Yoshi photos. The world wants to see Yoshi. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, thank you again for all your support and love and for messaging both of us. We really enjoyed reading them. Thank you, of course, to the guys in New York for making the show happen every week and dealing with all the tech issues. Leighton Schneider, Mike Dubusky, and Anthony Alley. Thank you very much, Maggie. I will leave you to say goodbye this week uh, because I feel like this is just as much your show as it is mine. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, it's, it's, it's me, you, and Yoshi, right? <laughs> Omid, it is always such a pleasure. And uh, I, we need a sign-off. See you see see next week, kicking it around. Royal and out. Oh, royal and out could be good. Royal and out. Royal and out. All right, we, we, let's <laughs> work on that. <laughs> We're going to work on that one. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye.